0: 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 1, 2, 3,
1: 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Si,
0: let's hope they don't start ripping up the street.
2: Hi, everybody. I'm Jeffrey Wright. Welcome back to the Public Art Fund podcast, Public Art Works where we use public art as a means of jumpstarting broader conversations about New York City, our history, and our current moment. In this episode, we'll time travel a bit back to the year 2000 when the Twin Towers still stood and New York City was, in some ways, a very different place. But first, a quick visit to the Whitney Museum of American Art downtown, where a subtle but important work by Lawrence Weiner is installed permanently on the museum's front steps. It's a manhole cover, albeit a fake one, but only in the sense that it doesn't open up into the bowels of the city, though it does look that way, and instead of bearing some civic crest or decorative motif, it says in Wiener's characteristic block lettering.
3: In direct line with another and the next. 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 And the next. And
2: the next. Yes. In direct line with another and the next. But what exactly does that mean?
3: Maybe there is a secret passage down there. I guess. Are there manhole covers that are in line with this? No, that would be too literal, wouldn't it? I've never looked down. It's a direct line going somewhere. Something like being in line with other people in terms of the way they think. We're all here, in line, together. Everybody is connected. My interpretation is that things are connected to one another, and that in part that's the concept of art, is that it connects us. The city is so full of like little hidden gems just like this. I think it just elevates your everyday experience with a surprise and something that sort of jars you out of your mundane thoughts as you walk down the street. That to me is part of the beauty of being in an urban environment, is the opportunity to experience things that you won't otherwise experience, and to have these shared moments. I think especially in New York, we kind of have tunnel vision. So it's nice knowing, I guess, that there are roses to smell or manhole covers to read.
2: Wiener's manhole cover originated as a long-term project with Public Art Fund that launched in November 2000 and technically ran until January 2011, though a few of these manholes remained installed and in use until recently. The exhibition included 19 functional manhole covers in total, installed over actual manholes on city streets in and around the east village the west village and union square the manhole covers themselves were made in collaboration with con edison and roman stone and the show was curated by our then director and chief curator tom Eccles, who now runs the hessel museum and center for curatorial studies at bard college the project which was titled nyc manhole covers was a different sort of public artwork it wasn't intrusive It didn't stop you in your tracks in the way a large sculpture or installation might. It spoke quietly but potently. It went undercover on our dense and busy city streets, which, of course, was the idea. Lawrence is, of course, one of the most celebrated artists of his generation, a central figure in what we now think of as conceptual art. You might have seen his work on buildings, billboards, and museum walls. And I don't mean hanging on museum walls, but actually printed on the walls themselves, combining block letters and geometric shapes and often engaging in a bit of wordplay. They say things like pushed as if and left as is, washed in water, hung out to dry, and how much is enough. Lawrence works in other media as well, including video, installation, printed matter, explosions, in the case of some of his earliest work, and thanks to public art fund, manhole covers. Born in the Bronx, Lawrence is also a tried-and-true New Yorker, which is basically where we'll start. I spent a lot of my youth,
0: putting work up on the wall and chalk in front of people's houses that I knew and that's how we discussed it and then we'd meet and we'd talk about it. I think that art can be made public and should be made public and the public is really quite more open to it than anybody realizes. My idea is that when you're putting things up for public that nobody asked for, it has to say something. Everybody can use graffiti and things, but it has to say my children are hungry or the sky is blue. It doesn't say anything. It's just nothing. It's just egotism. So when we were doing this, I put down this work that was all about relationship to sculptures. And that was in direct line with another and the next. What it says is exactly what it is. All things are in direct line with another thing
2: and... The next. Streamlined and direct as the content may be, there were, of course, some pretty heavy logistical aspects to a project like this, too. Here's Tom to explain.
1: I think for me, definitely, the excitement of working on these projects, one was the collaboration with the artists themselves. It is at the service of the work and the artists themselves. But also, just learn something new. Like, I don't know how to do that. Like, I was like, manhole cover? I don't know how to do that. And you're like, who does manhole covers? Then you find out con-ed. Well, I didn't know it was con-ed. And then you find out they're made in India. And you know, so everything was kind of a discovery about this great city too, but but about sort of like, there are lots of, lots of... How things are tied together. Yeah, so things are a kind direct of hidden In line from. with
0: another and the next.
1: Yeah. And often we were trying to do things where we weren't really seeking permission, or we were saying, we were giving ourselves permission, yeah. you know, but we also... You used to talk about democracy in this work. Well, democracy isn't just about everyone coming to the same agreement. It's about actually having very distinct viewpoints. And being able and, to exist on the same place. And being able to exist in the same place, yeah. And so saying, yeah, an artist does actually have the right to do this. So like in the case just of the Rachel Whiteread Water Tower...
2: This is another public art fund project that Tom's referring to here by the powerhouse English artist Rachel Whiteread. Her translucent sculpture takes the form of another iconic New York City structure, the Water Tower a fixture in our downtown skyline. The piece was originally installed on the roof of a building in the West Village from 1998 to 2000. It now sits permanently on the roof of the Museum of Modern Art. But back to Tom.
1: So like in the case just of the Rachel White Ridge Water Tower, there's no permit in the city of New York for a sculpture on a roof. No. So I was like, okay, so it's not a sculpture, what could it be? It's a sign. <laughs> so we got a permit for a sign, But then we got fined every month for having an unlit sign and I think certainly for us at the time each of these kind of projects unearthed some form of collaboration that was unexpected and in a sense from there everything would grow.
0: You dropped me at Con Ed and dropped me in an office with a man named Len. And we talked and we talked and the next thing I knew we were on board. And we just went ahead and did it and you dropped me at Roman Stone to have it made and they were enthusiastic and they stepped in and it's the foundry that had to send it out to India to get cast. Then everybody walked away feeling quite good about themselves.
2: For Lawrence, it was important that the work take on the form of the manhole cover unadulterated. This is in essence what gave the work its strongest effect. It fit into an urban environment.
0: People in, in cities don't look at the sky to find out where they are for the stars, you can't see it but they look around them and down. And that means that basically you're looking for a sighting one way or the other way to go when you're walking home. I go home by Johnny pumps, uh, what do they call them? Fire hydrants and other things because I'm an urban person.
1: We also really thought about the sighting of the, of the manhole covers in relation to your journey through the city. It was a little bit of history that either you knew or didn't know which was fine, but it was kind of well, your journey of the home. Most you could put it together,
0: <laughs> right? Because it was my bar voyage as a kid, from the checkerboard clubs on the Lower East Side to MacDougal Street to Union Square to Max's, and then it all went through down the city, and it ended up in front of the Village Nursing Home. Yep which I thought was not ironic, it's true. You, you live your life in a city and you end up in a nursing home.
1: Can you talk a little bit about your use of materials and materiality? I think at one point you said you're a materialist.
0: The relationship of you know, human beings to materials and material to each other in relation to human beings is all that anybody's art is about.
1: Maybe you could explain that in the context of the manhole covers, because you did talk about the manhole covers as situating the viewer, so to speak, in relation to the material. It allowed
0: the person to deal with a material that already had a function. So they didn't have to justify, what's that billboard in my way? What's that piece of something in my way? It was part of it was holding a hole in the ground. It was a manhole cover. They didn't have the word person in those days, as I said. That's the problem. It was was either a manhole cover or it was a sewer cover. I preferred manhole cover. I liked manhole covers. It was a way to unobtrusively put something out that somebody would discover. You walk across the manhole cover, one day you look down, and lo and behold, you're reading something, and you just either keep walking or you get involved. Well, not so bad. And uh, there is a difference between showing and telling. You can only tell what you know for certain. And I don't know whether my work is for certain. I know it's perfectly crafted for what it's supposed to do. All art is made by people trying to communicate with other people about something. All art, any kind, any culture's art, anything else, it's all about trying to show the world something that you're trying to tell them. I use a material that is a little more accessible than some things, that's it. And less accessible because it doesn't have the right body. It
2: doesn't look right. It's the kid that's not dressed correctly to be let into the place. As Lawrence and Tom both mentioned, a project like this that literally remakes and reinstalls actual pieces of New York City certainly requires the involvement of the city itself, in this case, Consolidated Edison, or Con Ed and fortunately they had someone there in their corner.
3: I am Lisa Frigand, and I'm speaking to you in the capacity that I had at Con Ed as manager of cultural affairs, which included philanthropy and special projects. The philanthropic part was through all disciplines, nonprofit organizations, and special projects would be ones exactly like the ones with Public Art Fund, um, MTA, Arts for Transit. The city, we sometimes generated our own projects as well within the company, so I would be the point person for that.
2: Lawrence's project wasn't Lisa's first with Public Art Fund, nor was it Con Ed's. Their expertise was needed on projects like Sarah Z's Corner Plot at Doris C. Friedman Plaza near Central Park. The sculpture was installed mostly in the ground a sort of mad scientist laboratory which could be viewed from street level through a small window in a chunk of building, a corner, that looked as if it was poking out from the street. Con Ed consulted heavily on Olafur Eliasson's New York City waterfalls, too, which famously flowed under the Brooklyn Bridge and along the banks of the East River in the summer of 2008. The piece, a series of man-made waterfalls, required a good amount of electrical power where there really wasn't any.
3: Nothing compared to Olafers because the project couldn't be done without con Ed. One of the things that I hadn't thought about is that the waterfront has no electric installations and we had to make determinations of where it was possible to create them for the pumps for these various works because there was a lot of electricity that was going to be going through them. So I got to take boat rides with Olafer and our technical people on police boats. And we would go up to the South Bronx where they would do test runs for the uh, waterfalls. At the rate at which they came down, the velocity and how much energy was necessary. And I learned so much, but... The magic of these projects is in the end, people have no clue of what work went into it. They just see this, the river is transformed and how magical it is to ride a boat and go under these waterfalls. It was wonderful.
2: Lawrence's manhole covers required Con Ed's involvement too, but that project was different in that it seamlessly intervened in something that is part of the fabric of our city in a very literal way. The timing was somewhat serendipitous as well. Con Ed had just wrapped a pilot manhole cover project with the designer Kareem Rashid.
3: Well, I have to admit that I never thought that my legacy in life would be working on artistic manhole covers, but so be it.
2: In the process, Lisa became a de facto expert on the subject. So what did she learn?
3: Well, first of all, how many there are. There are about a quarter of a million of them in Con Edison service territory, which includes Lower Westchester and the Boroughs how heavy they are, mostly between 250 and 300 pounds. And that I learned was uh, because methane gas builds up, and if they weren't heavy, they'd be blowing all the time. I learned that there are people who really love manhole covers. There are historians who really advocate for the historical ones. I think there's one that dates back to the 1880s in Lower Manhattan, and then there's a few, maybe two others that are 19th century manhole covers. And they're simple design, but you could see that they have treads. And I was told that was partially so that the horses didn't slip back in the day. And of course, on a more modern level, the concerns now are for withstanding traffic and some of the things we talked about, potential explosions, et cetera.
2: Like Tom, Lisa thought Lawrence and his work were a perfect fit for the manhole cover as form.
3: It's consistent with his work, and yet it's in a medium that you would never expect it to be. I also think as he's sort of iconoclastic and goes against so much that it was kind of fun to do it with Con Edison, like, you know, the most corporate, bureaucratic place you could possibly think of. There was a kind of, I'm guessing, little thrill for him to work with us on this project. And he was very gracious with everybody and humble about learning as much as he could about manhole covers and extrusion. So it was a kind of really nice fit in an unusual way, I would say. The other thing that Lawrence really loved was it getting messed up and dirt in it and pieces of tissue, he thought that added to the whole gestalt of the piece. So I took a lot of photos myself of things in it or it just how it changed by virtue of what people dropped in it or leaves, and that makes it part of its beauty, I think.
2: Lisa had an affinity for one of Lawrence's manhole covers in particular.
3: The Union Square is the one that I walked on and passed every day, because I would take the path train from Hoboken to 6th Avenue and always make it a point to walk on top of it. When I first saw the text and came in contact with it, I think my first interpretation of indirect line with another and the next was almost a commentary on the continuity of time in the world, how it's different, it's the same, but it's going to line up with the next... But something really incredibly very profound happened after 9-11. The meaning of Lawrence's piece took on a whole another effect after 9-11 in a very shocking way for me personally. The first time I walked over it and stepped on it on my way to my office two days after 9-11, and I read in direct line with another and the next, and I looked and saw it was in line with the trade center's I got the chills, and I thought it took on a whole haunting, ominous, somber, end-of-the-world feeling that obviously he hadn't intended, but the context now was so strong at that time that I couldn't help but think of it as almost prophetic. It was kind of bizarre for me, and it made me realize how art, particularly conceptual art, changes in context and meaning changes in context whatever intention is it was a very interestingly profound experience for me i really will never forget how much that actually physically hit me of how all of a sudden it took on a completely different meaning for me
2: there was a hopeful way of looking at this too
3: you know when you think of the material cast iron there really is a sense of permanence and the fact that they stayed really was comforting on some level. And it reminded me a little bit, I mean, I'm segueing here, but you know, the Fritz Koenig sphere, which was made of cast iron survived and it became very symbolic for the people of New York.
2: This is the spherical sculpture of a fragmented globe coming together that originally sat between the towers. It did indeed survive and has since been moved to Liberty Park nearby
3: sort of really hanging on to that and wanted it reinstated somewhere else as a kind of symbol of resiliency. I think that public art can have a function in times like that. And I think the other thing that happened, which is really interesting byproduct during the period because I was involved, was when they started putting maquettes down in the World Financial Center for possible designs, I think it was surprising how many people came to see them and made remarks. Just lay people with their families would pick one of ten. People took pride future-wise in what was going to be and replace in terms of the tower, in terms of the memorial. People, for the first time, understood structural engineering. No one ever really thought about how buildings stay up. And I think it created an awareness of design that people wanted their voices heard more, which I don't think had happened that much in civic dialogue. I think there was a lot of care that went into the redesign of even infrastructure facilities to make it as attractive as possible uh, now that they had the opportunity to start over and see what the shortcomings were in the past, even dealing with substations and how they looked and I think the entities that were in charge whether they be city or Con Edison etc actually took in more opinion than they generally would have because it was such a sensitive rebuild for everybody.
2: It is in essence about people and about citizens the citizens who encounter these things and the way these things they encounter go on to shape their days, their weeks, even their worlds. Which brings us back to Lawrence and Tom.
1: You have this phrase, I found it today, public art does in fact attempt to deal with not only alienation, but as well to help its citizens find their place in the sun. Exactly. That, that's place big. in the
0: sun is the only metaphor I think I've used in the last 50 years. <laughs> But to find your place in the sun. When you do public art, you have to realize that you are the public as well. You pay taxes, take your kids to the dentist. You're the public. You don't have to be apologetic. And you don't have to look down on anybody if they didn't know what it was.
1: Certain kinds of work, like particularly the southeast corner of Central Park, I used to know what was popular or not because the hot dog vendor would sell more hot dogs. Right, because people would hang out. In the case with Lawrence, I'm sure many of those encounters are very, very personal and private moments. Yes, and and often kind of later at night, you know, and often or yeah. early in the morning. There, when they're there was c- no
0: imperative of the day moving along.
1: Yeah, that uh, was the point. And and the thing for me was. Do you know what made, and this sounds a little pretentious now, but it really was important to me at the time, was the experience of it is different from a museum in that you encounter it over time, over again. Mm, That's public art But these are the things that 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 really touch people over time. We used to, you know, I used to always get um, letters and phone calls from angry people whenever we put a new artwork in, right? There's always angry people, right? The guy on Fifth Avenue used to call me and he'd berate me every time I put in new work yeah. and I'd say well you seem be pretty wealthy you got a family you've got a house you know so you know you're doing pretty well uh, but then it was when we took works out and yeah. removed them that you used to get this overwhelming uh response from where people. is it yeah where is it and also like then people would tell you what it meant to them you know yeah. and they weren't the people who lived on Fifth Avenue you know and that for me yeah. was kind of like That was actually genuinely moving and motivational in some ways.
0: There's a big difference between uh, supposition and imposition and such. I prefer to propose work rather than impose it. The public is not dumb. And because they never saw something before doesn't mean that they're not capable of looking at it and putting it into their own context. Mm. It's like somebody asked me from the New York City station when we put them down. How You know, you have an aggressive history. I was involved in politics in the city and civil rights and places. And why is this so not aggressive? And I said, in fact, I don't want to screw up somebody's day when they're away to work. I want to screw up their whole life. <laughs> and I meant it. And I still, to this day, mean it. You put out work that people used to understand who they are in relation to the society they're in. It will break what I consider the inequities and the horrors of our society. And art is about morality. Art is about how you relate to the world around you, the real world, the bricks and the mortar and the stone that's on the ground. Without that, you're lost.
2: Thank you for joining us. For more information on the artworks mentioned in this episode, please visit us at publicartfund.org. And please join us next time, too, where we hear from artist Sue De Beer and the skateboarder-slash-organizer whom she wanted to put on a billboard in Times Square. Public Art Works is a podcast by Public Art Fund, produced with Sandin Wolf. As the leader in its field, Public Art Fund brings dynamic contemporary art to a broad audience in New York City and beyond by mounting ambitious, free exhibitions of international scope and impact that offer the public powerful experiences with art and the urban environment. Public Art Fund is supported by the generosity of individuals, corporations, and private foundations, including lead support from Bloomberg Philanthropies, along with major support from Booth Ferris Foundation, the Carina Endowment Fund, the Mark Haas Foundation, Hartfield Foundation, Stavros Niarcos Foundation, the Donald A. Pells Charitable Trust, and the Silverweed Foundation. Generous support is also provided by the Lilly Auchincloss Foundation, Inc. Public art fund exhibitions are also supported in part with public funds from government agencies, including the New York State Council on the Arts, with the support of Governor Andrew M. Cuomo and the New York State Legislature, and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.